0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined once again by a very awesome and special guest, and that is Dr. Waldhausen. Dr. Waldhausen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. many of you if you have seen his previous talk on our channel i highly recommend doing so again it's really fantastic and honestly he did such an excellent job that at this point we've got over seventy-three thousand views on that episode and that's just a testament to how awesome he is and how great of an insight he can give us when it comes to the study of the history that we all love and we've got an awesome episode coming but before we get started For those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Waldhausen, would you uh, mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you do it? Well,
1: uh, uh, I did a dissertation on uh, the Sea Peoples. We talked about that the last time. It was in 2006 that I had my dissertation. I'm specialized in Louvian. So I do a lot of uh, Lewin hieroglyphic and uh, connected uh, things. And uh, I also did uh, Indo-European, what we are talking about uh, today. I had a book about it, about uh, Indo-Europeanization in the Mediterranean. So I focus on the Mediterranean uh, region. And, uh, well, I did also a little bit Semitic for the Bibloscript, uh, so, and for the Sea Peoples, I also studied uh, Egyptian hieroglyphic uh, texts, so um, I'm a little bit all-round Mediterranean. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. And uh, also, before we get started, to my subscribers, check out the links in the video description below. It's going to take you to his works, his uh, accessible information on academia, and really just take advantage of all the awesome things he has to offer. He does some wonderfully awesome stuff and I really can't recommend it enough. And now our special topic today is going to be the Indo-Europeanization of the ancient Mediterranean that he's actually just briefly mentioned. And I've got a long list of questions we're gonna go through and hopefully, it's gonna give you an entire picture of one of the most fascinating subjects and time periods in our history. And as we get started, Dr. Waldhausen, would you walk us through the etymological history of the term Indo-European?
1: Well, Indo-European has been around for some time. Uh, We have Jones, who was a judge in uh, in India when the British ruled there, and uh, he saw a lot of similarities between the the Sanskrit language and Greek and uh, Latin. So, uh, for example, pater, father, pitar in uh, Sanskrit. So, this is uh, there are a lot of them, and so he he saw that there is it is in, in fact one language group. And this is uh, the most, the largest language group in the world at the moment, because uh, so many people talk English, which is also part of uh, Indo-European, but German. The Germans, by the way, say Indo-Germanisch, so they have a little bit, because they think uh, German German language is the most Western and um, Sanskrit, the most eastern. Well, we also have Tocharian, uh, which is even more eastern than, uh, than India. It's in the Tarim basin in, um, in, uh, on the borderland with uh, China. So, um, it's a little bit difficult, but we, we, we are used to uh, Indo-European, which is the most common term. We also have the, the Journal of Indo-European Studies in America, uh, so uh, that's that's the term to use, I think.
0: And where did these Indo-European migrations come from? I guess really what I'm asking is, in the end, where did your Indo-Europeans come from originally?
1: Well, that, there, is, uh, there has been a long discussion lately between Colin Renfrew and... Uh, Maria Gimbutas and uh, Jim Mallory and David Anthony and uh, Colin Renfrew said uh, they they are coming from Anatolia during the Neolithic uh, revolution they spread the Neolithic revolution about uh, in Europe into Europe and this would be sixth millennium BC that's very early and uh, the Gimbutas um, Adherence of Kimbuta's theory said, no, it's um, from the steppe uh, in uh, North Pontic, North Caspian region, and it's later, it's from the fourth, third millennium BC onwards, and these are people with horses and with uh, with cars, and uh, so this is a little bit later than the Neolithic uh, revolution,
0: and then they around in Europe. And when it comes to the Indo-Europeans and the languages that they're going to bring with them, do we know anything about the languages that Indo-European replaces?
1: To be honest, no.
0: (laughs) There are (laughs) theories.
1: People think that uh, all Europe was Basque sometime or some other non-Indo-European language, but To be frankly, we don't have any text uh, in in a language uh, which is non-Indo-European in Europe. And Basque is, is of course, uh, a non-Indo-European language, but it's later uh, that we found documents in it. And it's a small area, so it's a little bit uh, rushed to think that uh, all Europe was, was once Basque and you have of course in in the, in the caucasus also languages which are not indo-european but but we don't have any reason to think that uh, they spread all over europe in the neolithic period or something like that so so frankly we are at a loss at the moment uh, what was pre indo-european
0: now when it comes to outside of europe if we're talking about anatolia and the mediterranean do we know anything about possible languages there that Indo-European replaced? Uh,
1: well, in um, Anatolia, we have, of course, Hattic, the Hattic language, which is not Indo-European. And uh, there is Hurritic, which is also not Indo-European. So there are candidates uh, for this. But, um, for example, it's not clear whether Hattic uh, was once... Uh, spoken in the whole of Anatolia uh, because, yeah, we, we don't have place names uh, all over Anatolia which can be identified as Hattic, so it's not
0: sure what was uh, before the Indo-European languages. If, uh, if we had to guess, when a foreign group comes in and they bring their languages and traditions and other things with them, it usually takes some time for the locals to kind of adapt that as well. Do we have any theories on how long it took for the Indo-European languages to really set in?
1: Well, that's, that's, that's a difficult question. Somehow, uh, everywhere where the Indo-Europeans went, they they planted their language. So, uh, And we don't have uh, evidence of uh, the language which was spoken before that. And uh, sometimes there's even a hiatus between uh, the, the Neolithic uh, population and the Indo European language uh, population. So there may
0: have been no contact at all at those places. So, In your work, you talk about the, some of the dialectical tendencies within the Indo European. And uh, I was hoping you could give us a little more information on that in the context of, let's say, the ancient Mediterranean.
1: Yeah, the, the Indo-European can be divided into three. Uh, the Indo-European Anatolian languages, Hittite and Luvian, are uh, presumably split off. Split of f- as, as the first So this is very early, and some people even say this is Indo-Hittite language group. It's not really Indo-European. Indo-European is later. And then we get uh, the period of the old Indo-European place names and river names, which were uh, researched by Hans Krahe and uh, this is all over Europe and also in the Mediterranean you find those uh, place names and river names and then you get the period of the uh, what I call the conservative Indo-European languages like Celtic and Germanic, Balto-Slavic. and after this you get another split off of the what I call innovative languages and that's Greek and Illyrian, and um, Indo-Iranian, and Thracian and Phrygian. And uh, those languages are typified by the use of the augment in the, in the conjugation of the verb, so eluon in Greek, you get the e in front, and this is typical for this uh, latest group of uh, Indo-European languages.
0: When it comes to the basis of, the epi- of this episode, the Indo-Europeanization of the ancient Mediterranean, I was wondering if you could expand to tell us what time period we are discussing here. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a long process.
1: Uh, I said uh, Indo-Anatolian is, is uh, the oldest type of language, which has the laryngeal as a chi, you know, uh, the, the sound laryngeal, H2 is uh, a chi in Anatolian. This is the only language which has this, still preserved. I think that um, Hittite, uh, Proto-Hittite and Proto-Luvian split off uh, already in the 4th millennium, but they stayed uh, first in the, in the Steppe region, so the Hittites went to the Mycop uh, region uh, in the Caucasus and uh, the Luwian, the proto luwians went to um, the region of Varna. And this is where you find the gold in this uh, early 1st uh, millennium BC. Varna is very rich in gold and uh, the Mycop uh, civilization is very rich in gold. So this was the place to be. <laughs> and... Um, Then from 3000 BC onwards we see the uh, earliest Indo-Europeanization of Europe and Anatolia by what I call the old Indo-Europeans. And um, these are the Indo-Europeans with the the river names and the place names uh, of Hans Krahe. So this is an earliest layer and um, only uh, later on in Europe, this split off into Celtic and Germanic and Italic. And I think that, you know, it's a whole process. In, 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 in 2300 BC, we get again uh, Indo-European infiltration in the Mediterranean. And I think that's the period that um, proto luvians and Proto-Hittites went to Anatolia. Before this, we had old Indo-Europeans in Anatolia with the horse and um, circular settlements and uh, place names in ST. And in 2300, we get uh, the earliest Hittites. Uh, they, you know, in al the, the graves are uh, similar to the, the mykop civilization with house uh, type of graves. And uh, the Luwians are traceable, so the Hittites went from the east into Anatolia and the Luvians went through uh, from the west and uh, those you can trace by uh, catacomb graves which are also typical of of the steppe and uh, you find them in the in the Mediterranean region and in western Anatolia you only find uh, destructions (laughs) and nothing else so there was clearly uh, something happening at this time And uh, in 2300, 2000 BC, we also have um, in uh, Greece, um, the coming of people from the north. And I think those are uh, the Thracians and Phrygians in first instance. And they have a similar type of language uh, with uh, the Augment as uh, Greek. And uh, the Greeks are themselves latecomers they come uh in uh, 1600 BC with 1650 BC with the, the shaft graves and the richness in the shaft graves and you have then uh people who are fighting in chariots and this is typical for the Mycenaean uh, civilization but this is this is late uh, you also find uh, chariots coming into Uh, the Levant, uh, and into Egypt with with the Hyksos, this is all the same period 17th, uh, uh, late 18th century, beginning of the 17th century BC. So the the process of uh, Indo-Europeanization takes a long time and it has various layers. In all, you see the layers in Anatolia, we have uh, old Indo-European 3000 BC, and uh, Hittite and Luwian 2300 BC. And in Greece, we have old Indo-European, the Pelasgians, in, um, in Greece um, from 3000 BC. And in, then we get Thracians and Phrygians in 2300 BC and the Greeks in 1600 BC. So in, in Greece, it's, it's a three level uh, development. So, so it, t- it takes a long time uh, to Indo-Europeanize there. And we see the same things happening in Italy, Uh, the uh, the old um, Indo-Europeans are the Ligurians and they are uh, very early, from 3000 BC onwards. And we have old Indo-Europeans in Iberia, the Lusitanians, and they are also from 3000 BC and the, the, the Celts come into Iberia only from 1200 BC onwards with chariots on, um, depicted on uh, stelae and uh, the Italians, the Italic people come also 1200 something like that in, into Italy so this is also late
0: And when it comes to these movements do we believe that they were small migrations that happened over time or are we looking at much larger movements? Well, that's a, be a little bit a
1: tricky point. Um, I think, uh, for example, in three thousand BC, uh, we see catacomb graves um, in uh, the Levant, Bab Edra, uh, near the Red Sea. We see catacomb graves in um, in Sicily, but. This might have been small groups, for example, in the Levant uh, we know that the language uh, was Semitic Semitic in the end. So they didn't leave much um, imprint of their language there. And um, in Sicily it may have been uh, old Indo-Europeans, but it may have been a small group uh, and they must have uh, been traveling by ship. That's the interesting thing, you can't go to Sicily without a ship. <laughs> and also in, um, in Italy we have the renal culture where we see a grave um, with a horse burial. Horse is typically domesticated in the steppe uh, region. So if you find a horse, you find the Indo-Europeans. And domesticated horse then. And... Um, in the Rinaldona culture, we find uh, a horse burial and a wife which was uh, killed uh, at the same time as the burial as the male, which is typical also for the steppe, uh, rite of suti, they call it. And um, so they may also have come by, by sea. Uh, and you see in this period the distribution of, um, of um, uh, stone men here. With uh, with uh, depictions of uh, all kinds of figures, etc., with weapons, Uh, the Indo-Europeans were very fond of weapons. So they and they introduced the weapons
0: uh, in those regions. As Indo-Europeans settled throughout the Mediterranean, do we know what impacts they had on the local cultures that they settled amongst?
1: Yeah, they they may have been small groups they may have been large group larger groups uh, uh, at at places but um you know the, the language ends up to be uh indo-european so they were dominant and their dominance was based on um on on the weapons they uh, they carried and uh, they could be very aggressive uh, we see destructions everywhere where they come and uh, so they could have wiped out uh, the, 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 the locals, there were no doubt locals, but uh, I said before, we don't have real tangible evidence of who those locals were in the
0: language, uh, so that's a, a little bit a uh, difficulty uh, And so as the Indo-Europeans arrive throughout the Mediterranean and other places, they're not only going to bring their language, but they're going to bring writing systems. And so how did this writing system change where they settled? And what kind of writing systems did they use?
1: Well, the writing comes secondarily, Uh, for example, with the Louvians. Uh, I uh, explained that they arrived in the 23rd century BC and then we get uh, writing there from 2000 BC onwards. So there is 300 years without writing. So we only know from 2000 onwards that they were writing in hieroglyphics, uh, Lewin hieroglyphic. The earliest inscription is found in uh, Baitse Sultan. Writing can be very late uh, in Italy, for example. The earliest inscriptions are from the 7th century BC. And uh, I think the Italic people arrived uh, in the 12th 12th century BC. So that's also a long period without writing. So the, the writing is, is um, the introduction of writing is not directly connected with the arrival of Indo-Europeans. We see it later uh, in most instances uh, when they, st- they get into contact, for example, in Italy with the alphabet through the, through the Greeks and Anatolian population. Um, so that's, that's a secondary uh, development. The writing is still is is uh, from the ninth century. Uh, they, they they get the Phoenician alphabet. They make it partly a syllabary
0: again, and then you get uh, Celtiberian uh, inscriptions. <laughs> and so we've talked about the migrations. We've talked about timelines and uh, dates, and we've also discussed language and writing. And my next question is going to touch on religion. And so. I'd like to follow up by pointing out your section in your paper called Tri-Functional Religious Ideology Among Indo-European Groups in the Third and Second Millenniums BC. Would you expand on this and kind of explain that to our subscribers?
1: Well, it's it's uh, the idea of uh, Dumézil who wrote uh, on about this, that um, typical Indo-European is the the sun god, the storm god, and the tutelary deity in this order. So you have one, two, three. And you see that uh, everywhere where the uh, Indo-Europeans uh, arrive. So this is very uh, interesting. And uh, for example, the storm god is always associated with weapons. And uh, the tutelary deity with um, with uh, agriculture and animals and uh, the sun god, of course, with, with with the sun. So, and you see this on, on statue man here also uh, reflected uh, that you see um, uh, solar syst- symbols on top and, and weapons in between and uh, animals uh, below. So this is uh, the three functional uh, Id of the indo-europeans in their religion
0: i want to do a follow-up to that actually because it just popped into my head and we talk about the three main gods of these indo-european groups as we know many other groups like that such as the celtic speaking peoples by the time the roman empire or republic let me rephrase that <laughs> by the time the roman republic conquers what was Celtic-speaking Gaul, at this point, we know the Celts had hundreds of deities, hundreds of them. It's like a god for everything. <laughs> and so my question is, in your personal opinion, why do you think that these Indo-European groups expanded to have so many more gods than just a simple three?
1: Yeah, that's a difficult question. You know, the the Hittites had a thousand gods, uh, the land of the thousand gods, uh, of course you see always uh, in religion uh, you can see uh, sometimes uh, the the influence of of people who were already there uh so so you get a mixture of of in the religion but um even in hittite uh, you see sometimes the order of sun god storm god tutelary deity uh, Uh, preserved, but uh, of course a lot has happened and we see a Hattic influence in in, uh, religious influence on the Hittites, so uh,
0: that certainly uh, did happen. And now with the arrival of these Indo-Europeans, we know obviously they brought languages with them, but now I want to shift focus and I want to talk about technology what did the Indo-Europeans bring to the playing field when it comes to material culture, uh, weapons, we can even say, uh, for example, horses. Could you tell us just yeah, a little yeah, bit more? Yeah.
1: The, the, the Steppe uh, region uh, where the earliest Indo-Europeans uh, lived, uh, you have a lot of horses there. So uh, they were the, the first to, to domesticate the horse. And uh, presumably, they were also riding the horse. And uh, if you are on a horse, you can uh, much easier control sheep, for example, in larger uh, numbers, and uh, also control other horses. So this is what what they did. Uh, The steppe population is uh, a little bit more advanced than agriculture uh, only. They had um, a mixed economy and uh, they had a lot of husbandry, so uh, animals uh, were uh, very important to them. And they had sheep and goat and uh, and horses um, and and cattle, you know the Indo-Europeans like to fight about cattle, (laughs) we know that from Homer. So uh, to steal cattle from from your opponent was the the greatest deed you can do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So um, uh, this is a a later type of economy than just um, Neolithic uh, 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 products uh, from agriculture. And um, uh, another thing is that they are very uh, advanced in uh, in uh, cars, they have uh, uh, four-wheeled uh, wagons, and with those wagons they can uh, uh, travel along uh, larger uh, uh, routes. And with all their uh, belongings in the car, so uh, the earliest Indo-Europeans into Europe take the car with them. So from 3000 uh, BC, we find a car. Uh, uh, wheels in, in uh, Holland, for example, and those were solid wheels. So these were heavy carts with solid wheels. And um, uh, of course the horse became uh, more important with the later development of the, of the spoke wheel. This is uh, from uh, 18th century BC. In Sintashta we find the earliest chariots and uh, then you can also fight from the chariot, so you are much more uh, mobile than, uh, than other peoples. Uh, so, they, they were advanced in, um, in, in car technology and um, of course they had a lot of weapons also. If you have uh, cattle or uh, uh, sheep, you have to defend it uh, against uh, others. So, they, they needed the weapons and so they were also uh, advanced with, uh, with
0: weapons. And so with the arrival of horses and carts, let's talk about the chariot. When do we really see the chariot pop up, and how is the chariot going to revolutionize warfare?
1: Well, it did revolutionize warfare. It, uh, it was first found in Shintashta. Uh, you have graves with, uh, with spoke wheels. Of course, the wheels ha, ha, uh, are no longer there, but they see it in the coloring of the, of the, of the sand and um, of the earth. And uh, so they know there were um, uh, chariots and um, we see then uh, from the steppe people going across the Caucasus mountains. I don't know whether they took the sea route or the land route, uh, but uh, they went across it and uh, you see then the uh, chariot fighting introduced in the orient and they conquer everything you only have to think of the Hyksos in uh, in Egypt they take the the delta um, in Egypt uh, thanks to the the chariots so they they were uh, highly superior in in warfare uh, in this uh, period compared to the people who were living in the in the levant at the time And we can even identify them as uh, Indo-Aryans. So speaking a language uh, closely to to, uh, Sanskrit um, uh, in India, uh, because um, uh, of the the royal names of the Mitanni uh, kingdom are um, uh, of this uh, Indo-Aryan type and they have rata, uh, rata. you know, uh, rata is the, is the chariot so uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, we see them um, and um, you see them conquering uh, the levant uh, in this period of course um, this were not uh, only um, the, the the nucleus was in the europeans and they become the king and the royal house of mitanni But the language in Mitanni kingdom is Huritic, is not Indo-European. So they took a lot
0: of people with them uh, of other languages. This is, of of course, possible. And now, since we've touched on chariots and the carts, and we're starting to talk about the horse, my next question is, when it comes to the Indo-Europeans and religion, did the horse play a prominent role within that?
1: Uh, yeah yeah for sure uh, we we had we we had the ashva Meda in in uh, india which is a ritual uh, with a with a horse the 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 queen copulating with the with the horse uh, which may be a ritual not a actual fact uh, but uh, still the horse was was central in this um, in this uh, religion and uh, The horse was uh, allowed for a year to run freely, and then it was sacrificed, and so there was a whole uh, ritual uh, surrounding this. So, uh, And and you find this in in more Indo-European
0: civilizations. Interesting. Yeah, and I was going to say, the horse, even in the Celtic societies, for example, played a very, very prominent role.
1: We, in Celtic, we have the horse goddess Icona or Epona. So uh, the horse is, is uh, typical, uh, very, is, is very important, yes.
0: And now as we approach Indo-Europeans establishing themselves throughout the Mediterranean, what changes can we expect from this and how will it affect the Bronze Age?
1: One thing which they introduced is 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 uh, weapons uh, which were not there, so they, they were... Uh more aggressive than the, than the local population in um, who were Neolithic farmers and uh, didn't specialize so much in weapons. So this is, of course, uh, a fundamental uh, change. And you see this everywhere. You know, uh, the latest evidence um, about uh, DNA, uh, which uh, made uh, uh, Colin Renfrew uh, uh, skip his uh, own theory that it were Neolithic uh, farmers uh, who spread uh, in the European languages. And uh, now we know uh, from the DNA that, um, that it were people from the steppes uh, who, uh, who uh, introduced those languages. And it is even suggested that they may have taken with them the plague so uh, that uh, local population in, in England, there is an example, and in Poland, there's an example, that uh, local population seems to disappear. Uh, they don't find them in the DNA anymore. And uh, so uh, there are suggestions that um, like, uh, like the Huns, uh, they, they took with them the plague and uh, so that um, the the local population died out. uh, Or or you see it in in South America uh, where the the measles uh, killed uh, the local population. So this is certainly a possibility that they they took with them a disease which they were themselves um, uh, didn't uh, have problems with. The locals were not immune and uh, the people who brought it were immune for the, for the disease. This, this is a possibility uh, that, that
0: it happened uh, at, at some places. So what we've learned so far to my subscribers, the Indo-Europeans not only bring their language and their cultures, they bring their own takes on religion, they bring awesome new technologies that is going to forever change the world, especially when it comes to warfare and travel And also, they also possibly, as he touches on, brings disease, which is really interesting because, as we all know from studying the conquest of the Americas, you've got violence, which is a natural factor of conflict, but then you've got the unintentional spreading of disease. And so that's fascinating. I had not actually known that, and so this has completely blown my mind today.
1: (laughs) Suggested by uh, Reich in his book on on, uh, ancient DNA. So, so you need uh, the ancient DNA. You also had a lot of uh, uh, writing about uh, recent DNA and that they're projected back in time, but they can have, uh, the, the, so many changes in the population can have taken place uh, in earlier times. So you really need the ancient DNA to be able to to, to work with uh, this material. We had Maria Gimbutas and David Anthony, Jim Mallory, Saying all oh, those people come from the steps, but now they can prove it from the DNA. This is step DNA,
0: which is introduced in in Europe. Uh, that is fascinating. I'm gonna have to look up that book. That is that sounds like a must-have. So I'm gonna have. To
1: yes, look it. and it's very readable. Uh,
0: it's it's uh, almost popular writing. So so it's a really good book. Interesting. And so as we come to the final portion of our interview today, I want to ask a more personal question. And that is, how long have you studied the Indo-Europeans and everything that we've talked about today?
1: Well, for a long period, uh, you know, uh, I had um, my uh, training in Mediterranean pre and proto-history and my teacher uh, was Jan Best and he uh, had the th- he, ha- he had a theory about Linear A and about the coming of the Greeks. And uh, the coming of the Greeks was, according to him, they come from the south. Because we have Danaos from Egypt and Katmos from, uh, from the Levant. And um, so uh, they might have been some split-off of the Hyksos with, with chariots, you know. The, the Stelae machine have uh, chariots uh, depicted on them and um, so this was my introduction to uh, Indo-European and then I started and and he told me also that and the other students that uh, the Greeks were not the earliest Indo-Europeans but they were preceded by uh, Thracians, and I would add uh, Phrygians you know uh, Pelops is a Phrygian and the Peloponnesos in Greece is named after Pelops, and we have Phryxos, which is the Phrygian, not, nothing else but the Phrygian, and um, we have Thracians, also in the myth in Greek, we have Theraus in Daulis, uh, so, and this is an Odrysian uh, royal name, and the Odrysians are mentioned in the Linear B, Uh, inscriptions on vases, uh, which were imported in Thebes for the hinterland. So we know the Odrysians were once in the hinterland and they only later went to Thrace in the north. So the the Phrygians and Thracians were before the Greeks. And the Greeks only came um, in the 16th century, 1650, 1600 BC with the chariots. Uh, And then they introduced uh, the Greek language and we get Linear B with... Machinian Greek language, so um, uh, that was a starting point. And um, of course, I I did also some Celtic, and uh, you want to know when when do the Celts uh, arrive? And I did Luwian, so you want to know when when did the Luwians arrive? So this is how you get into this uh, field. But uh, I'm not telling very uh uh much new in 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 uh, you know i follow um Butas and um, and uh, mallory and david anthony in in you know the book about the horse the wheel and uh, uh so this this is uh in in a way this is mainstream um uh, knowledge that that uh, the indo-europeans came from the steppes most people focus on on europe and i focus on the mediterranean region and the most important point is that there were more levels so it starts 3000 bc then we get 2300 bc another level
0: and then 1600 the latest level and you know that's just another thing to my subscribers dr waldhausen has spent his career studying the subjects that we're talking about today. And that's why I highly encourage you all to once again, check out the links in the video description below. It's gonna take you to his work and really dive in and enjoy all the awesome research that he has put together for us to better understand the subjects that we all love. And Dr. Waldhausen, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Okay, hey, it was a pleasure to meet <laughs>